Welcome to the AMPA Podcast. My name is Omar Mualem, your host, here to psych you up for the 2018 Alberta Magazines Conference. The event, as always, brings some of our industry's best minds in editorial, design, marketing, and advertising to the beautiful city of Calgary for two days of learning, networking, and a little bit of partying, too. So, leading up to March 8th and 9th, I'm interviewing keynotes that you can meet there. We're going to share tips and wisdom, and we're going to talk lots of shop. In this episode, I'm talking shop with Melanie Diesel, one of the sharpest people doing native advertising. And if you don't believe me, well, remember that multimedia story about women inmates in the New York Times, that in-depth look at the real Orange is the New Black sponsored, of course, by... Orange is the New Black and Netflix. Well, that was Melanie working as the Times' first editor of branded content. She's since left to run her own consultancy, M. Diesel Media, so that more companies can have content of that caliber. That includes Time, People, Sports Illustrated, Entertainment Weekly, and a little media company called Viacom. Of course, this new wave of advertising does have its critics, including the comedian John Oliver, who singled out her work as the best of a bad thing. But is there value in making advertising more subtle, educational, maybe even more enjoyable? Melanie Diesel joins me via Skype. Hi, Melanie. Hey there. In so many ways, native advertising has been part of our media diet, going back to old radio shows, TV shows that were riddled with cigarette ads and soap endorsements. And I think one of the examples that you've brought up in past interviews is Betty Crocker recipes on the backs of cereal boxes. But there is something dramatically different about this category of advertising, in part, I think, because of the unique forces at work. How do you think that social media and the new financial reality of media companies has created space for native advertising? So many factors are at play, right? I mean, what I, when I give the example of the, the Betty Crocker boxes or, or even something like the Lego movie, which is truly a, a full-length feature film branded content, right? It's sort of to help us realize that brands have been telling stories for a very long time, and we do trust content from brands when it makes sense, when it's within their area of authority and it's providing us some sort of value. All of these new platforms that we embraced over the last 10, 15 years, you know, including social media and news becoming more of a digital product than necessarily a print product has forced us to think about what their role could be. And that is necessarily different in a digital context or in a social context than it may have been, you know, when we were just running a print ad. So it's forced them to kind of think about all the competitive content out there, all the things that are competing for our audience's attention. Audiences are a lot less discriminatory about uh, where they get their news and entertainment. It can come from a blog, it can be a meme, it can be thoroughly fact-checked like something from The New Yorker, or it can be a complete fabrication, as we know. But the delivery mechanism is is kind of, it's leveled the playing field. It, it really has. And I think the other thing that it's done is it's sort of, it's made us raise the bar a little bit when it comes to what we create. Because I always say consumers have never had more choices for things to put in their eyeballs or in their ears, right? There's so much to look at, to read, to, to watch, to listen to. So if you want your brand content, you know, you need to be something worthy of being chosen, worthy of being added to their podcast queue or saved for their, their reader for later, you know? That means we have to try a little harder to make something worth doing. You know, our, our readers can can block us with ad blockers, so you need to have something worthy of sticking around for. So we, we've tossed around a few terms there, brand content and native advertising. I think before we get any deeper into this interview, we're probably going to need some definitions how is native advertising different from sponsored content or an advertorial or a product placement ad? 
I think one of the things that's really confusing and, and sometimes challenging about this whole industry is we do have a lot of terms to refer to any sort of partnership content between brands and publishers. And there are nuances to the way that they can be used. But the fact of the matter is, so long as everyone is using them differently or has a different favorite, it's important for us to clarify. So as a general rule, the phrase native advertising can refer to any form of advertising where the ad is native to the context in which it's presented. You know, native is still an adjective and it means that something is organic or belonging or contextually relevant, you know, just like a person or a plant are native to a region. What's an example of that? Uh, So, I mean, if you're on Facebook, for example, what's most native to a Facebook feed is a post. So that's why, you know, we do have right rail ads that are more like banners, but you get those sponsored stories that are right in your feed in between, you know, a post from your cousin and a post from your high school lab partner. Uh, That is what's most native to that environment. Same thing for Twitter, you know, a promoted tweet rather than sort of a pop up, you know, video view is, is not native to that environment. So a promoted tweet is what works best. Where it gets confusing is in a publishing context, when you're talking about a blog, a website, you know, a magazine or newspapers, what's most native for them is content. And so that's where some of the confusion comes in. Branded content, so far as it's content from a brand living on a publisher's platform, is in fact a form of native advertising. And for those who work exclusively in publishing, that's what native is for us. And that's why we use the term that way. Native advertising is kind of a bucket for any any ad that's native to its context. And in a publishing context, that means we're talking about branded or sponsored content. People have their favorites. Some people still call it custom publishing or paid post, paid content. You know, it's just sort of at that point a branding choice and which term, you know, resonates with you and your team. Um, But it is important in any of these contexts to ask those questions upfront whenever you're working with a new partner, brand or publisher, to make sure you're on the same page and you're not just using, you know, different terms for the same thing. Okay, so now now that we have that, I want to learn about how you got into it because you graduated from J school not that long ago, 2013, and you went swiftly into native advertising for some of the biggest media brands in the US and you were eventually running T-Brand Studio, which is the New York Times studio for branded content. Now, do you know that that's where you were going when you graduated? Um, was native advertising and sponsored content the plan? Absolutely not. You know, it was all by mistake. Truthfully, it was, you know, following the industry where I saw it going. I had, you know, what is now the fortune, but at the time felt like the misfortune to have really focused on areas of journalism that are not particularly employable. (laughs) My undergrad degree, I really focused on database and investigative reporting, which, you know, are often the first folks to get cut from downsizing newsrooms. My master's was in arts criticism, which is, you know, generally speaking, the next team to get cut. So when I was graduating, I had all of these storytelling skills and was having trouble finding, you know, arts criticism or investigative reporting jobs. It was a recruiter that I had been working with who wisely suggested I might, you know, open my opportunities up to include this, you know, role that was called native ad product manager. And basically my job uh, at the time it was Huffington Post would have involved reporting and creating stories on behalf of brands. And truthfully, I thought, you know, after a little bit of research, I thought, this is something I could do. It's certainly using a lot of the same skills. And, you know, worst case, I'll do this for a while, get myself to New York, and then, you know, hopefully get back to a more editorial role. It wasn't my grand plan. As soon as I got into it, I realized the incredible opportunity and the fact that there was a real need for journalism experience and mindset and skill set. I kind of came to love it because I was getting the new creative challenge every day of having to come up with you know, really great engaging content ideas. And unlike a lot of the the 
journalism jobs I was looking at, I was actually, you know, getting a decent salary and getting to work with brands who had budgets to create content. You know, I worked at HuffPost for quite a while doing what was needed for us at that point was listicles and, you know, gift lists, slideshows, things like that, a lot of blogs. But I really welcomed the creative challenge when the New York Times put out that they were starting a team. I thought that's a completely different context where journalism and integrity and reputable sources and all of that we're going to be so important. And I thought I would love to be a part of that. And I was, you know, really lucky that they thought I could be a great part of that too. And brought me in as the first editor of branded content there so that I could help T-Brand Studio grow into, man, they're just such an amazing team, even through to today, still creating some of the best work out there. In those, uh, you know, Halesian days of the year 2014, even we professionals were still just becoming acquainted with this concept. And I think that there was some hostility toward the concept from both readers and, and probably especially professional journalists. Did you run up against any of that from your colleagues and counterparts? I mean, did you feel any... Um, cynicism within yourself? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think it was, it was tough at that point, you know, people weren't as widely familiar with native advertising, they really felt it might be kind of shady, you know, that I was sort of trying to trick people into reading ad content. And my argument, whenever I, I face that sort of pushback, you know, folks, former colleagues, or, you know, former classmates and, and professors saying that I had sold out or gone to the dark side, or, you know, was wasting my skills, my thought was always this content is going to be created either way. And I think we're all better off if someone with a journalism sensibility is at the helm, making people be mindful of things like sourcing and diversity of sources and corroborated sources and whether something is truly newsworthy and unique or not being an editorial conscience for a marketing content team it made me feel have a, like I had a little more sense of purpose and I could really bring value in that environment. It's been wonderful over the last few years to see a lot of those colleagues and, and former you know doubters kind of come around and realize that these kinds of teams can create significant revenue that supports the ongoing fantastic work that's being done in newsrooms around the country. And if there is someone with a, an editorial conscience at the helm, the content they create can, can truly be valuable to an audience in a way that perhaps a bunch of banner ads or, or something else that would be your other revenue option is not. Yeah, you. I mean, you mentioned probably the uh, most prominent criticism, which is that it can be deceptive. And there was a study done by IAB that found less than half of the readers recognize sponsored content as advertising. Is that a problem? It's certainly a problem in terms of the trust we have with our readers, you know, and our audience in a publishing context. It's so important. That's that's what we trade on, right? That's our, our claim. That's what we have is our trust with our readers. But I do think it's important to note that it is almost never the intention of either a brand or a brand storytelling team to deceive an audience. Could you ever imagine an environment where a brand would make a commercial and not include their name or want people to not know what it was for? You know, when you're pouring money, time, resources into building a piece of, of brand storytelling, regardless of the context, the key thing is that people know it's coming from you. That's the whole value. In situations where readers aren't aware, it means something has gone wrong. And I don't know that that necessarily means something deceptive or manipulative has happened, but that we're really still learning how to make these kinds of things clear on the internet in an age when someone might not even be able to tell you which publication they read an article in, never mind who wrote it or when it was published, or as we were talking about earlier, whether it was appropriately fact-checked. So I think a big part of it comes down to media literacy. The same thing that's impacting, you know, fake news and opinion versus fact 
impact is affecting brand content and how do we clearly communicate where this content is coming from, who the sources are, and how trusted it can be. How much how much product pitching do you think readers will tolerate? Because you're right about it. I mean, it doesn't make sense from the company's point of view to invest this money in, in content and then not include their company. Obviously, that's that's the whole point of it. At the same time, when you look at sponsored content, oftentimes it's it's really just a logo at the top of the screen. Or, you know, maybe it's one mention or maybe it's an expert from this company that is interviewed for it. How do you find that balance? I think it really depends on, on two things, on the context where this content's being presented and on the value that's being brought by that advertiser. Because, you know, if you think about the difference between a financial article that's, you know, in a, a rep- reputable financial publication, your tolerance for a brand presence in that area is probably pretty low. You're not there for a brand experience. You're there for reliable information that impacts your financial standing. If you think about reading a women's lifestyle magazine, well, half the reason you're there is to get product recommendations and tutorials and learn how to do make this look. And that's what you're there for is really a product experience, depending on the publication and the natural role that brands do or don't have in that environment editorially, you know, really depends on on how much you can push that into a branded context. The other thing is it really depends on the value. If a, if it's a sell just to sell, folks aren't really receptive to that. We don't like to be sold to. Um, however, if a brand is providing tremendous value, if we think back to that financial example I just gave, if a financial institution has done a tremendous study that provides really valuable information to readers, suddenly I'm a little less bothered by them being there, sharing that information, especially when it applies whether I'm their customer or not. If a brand can really focus on serving their audience and providing value, then the tolerance for their being there is, is tends to be a lot higher. Let's let's talk about audience because you've you've done both some really fun stuff. You ghost wrote for Ron Burgundy in an op-ed for the Huffington Post, presented, of course, by Anchorman 2. And then you've done some very serious stuff, the the Women Inmates Project for the New York Times, which was among the top 2% of the most trafficked New York Times stories in 2014. But no matter what you say that with branded content, you're thinking about readers, not customers, but readers. What is the distinction? It is such a small distinction, but I think it's really important. When you are a brand and you are publishing content, maybe on your blog, you are speaking to customers, people who have come to your website with the express purpose of learning more about you. When someone's on a publisher's website, on a a magazine's website, a newspaper's website, on a blog, they're not your customer. They're our readers, right? They belong to that publisher and that's the relationship they have is a relationship with the publisher. So in a sense, if we're introducing you, Mr. Brand, to our friends, you need to have respect on some level for the fact that they are our friends first. It's the kind of thing we'd understand in a, in a human context, right? Like if you're going to someone else's party, you don't you don't steal the spotlight, you know? You have to have some sense of what's the tone of the room that you're walking into? What's the existing relationships that you have uh, the wonderful privilege of, of being able to, to join, uh, you know, that conversation and that if you think about putting the readers first, what do the readers of this publication want? You know, in the case of that Ron Burgundy thing, I'm glad you brought that up. I almost forgot it. And it was so much fun. But what we were thinking is, what do HuffPost comedy readers, what would they want to hear? They'd want to hear something in the hilarious voice of Ron Burgundy. That's what they're, you know, they'd be fine with that because they come here to laugh. And we know they have an affinity for, you know, these types of films because they've interacted with similar content before. So in that case, having something, you know, authored by Ron Burgundy, though he's fictional, that kind of thing we had tolerance for on HuffPost comedy. You know, we had ghost written things like that 
you know, before editorially. It made sense. That wouldn't fly at the New York Times. That kind of distinction is, is really important. That's why the context of where your content lives is, is so vital. Another thing you've said is that the content has to focus on something the brand has the power to speak about. How do you find that? What are the questions that you should be asking before you figure that out? This this is, is really key. And again, this is something you recognize in the context of normal life, right? If your car is acting up, then you expect Ford or Toyota or whomever to be able to provide you information about what's wrong, how to fix it, etc. If Ford was sending you direct mail to your home with holiday recipes, you'd probably be more than a little confused. You know, it's just not within their area of authority. So when we think about a brand's area of authority, I, I say there are three core areas. Uh, it's sort of like a pyramid at the base the foundation is the product focused content. This is content that's directly about your products, your services, you know, whether it's the different models you offer, the colors, the sizes, the flavors, the functionality, anything about what you sell is that real foundation. And you do have to create content about that, even if it's you know, product descriptions for your site. That's really the, the foundation. The next level is the role you play in your customer's life. So in the case of, you know, uh, your car, uh, they might offer you road trip tips, you know, recognizing that we are a vehicle with which you get to other experiences. You know, this is is not all about the technology in the car, but that it's a place that gets you from A to B and they can create content around that experience, whether it's winterizing your car or safety for your family. All of those things are part of that second tier, the role you play in your customer's life. At the very top of that pyramid of your area of authority would be emotional content about the emotions that you can help evoke. You know, when we think of something like Dove, Dove has done an excellent uh, job of this with their Real Beauty campaign. You know, they're out there having conversations about inner beauty and confidence and and at the end of the day, Dove is still a soap company, right? <laughs> they still want to sell you soap and shampoo and, and shaving cream and all of that. Um, but they're able to have that conversation about inner beauty and confidence because they recognize that when you have the products you need to feel happy, healthy, and confident and clean, uh, that you walk out through the world as a more confident person. So they're able to sort of stretch the boundaries of, you know, this, this will help your hair look clean, uh, all the way up through this will make you feel confident. That's so interesting that you brought up the Dove example, because when that campaign was, um, sort of taken out of context by Dove itself, but whittled down to like a three second clip of a uh, black black woman removing her, r removing her shirt and then becoming an Asian woman, then becoming a white woman. It, people got really upset about that because they, they thought that what Dove was essentially saying is wash the darkness out of your skin. But the campaign itself, if you look at the body of the work for that campaign, it was actually about body positivity and about and it was interesting, you know, that that is a great example of we were talking earlier about, you know, this the fake news and the skepticism that customers have. That's a big part of it. You know, that was clipped out of context. If you look at, like you said, at the full body of work, it doesn't even start with the black woman as the first one to appear in the video. It was simply the way it was clipped kind of gave that impression, you know, in the short three second social video that appeared. There has to be this mindfulness of the context where your content's going to show up because in the context of a full minute long ad, maybe that's not an issue. In a three-second cut down where you don't have additional context, that can be problematic and really leave customers with a very different impressions. 
Let's talk about a project that you worked on. I, I mentioned the Orange is the New Black Women Inmates project earlier. This has become kind of the gold standard for sponsored content, for branded content. Can you tell me what was in that creative brief? Like what were the key performance indicators that you had leaving that first meeting with Netflix? Definitely. That was a, a unique case because, you know, we were not being asked to drive up viewership in a very trackable or specific way. We were not being asked to sell subscriptions to Netflix. Our primary task was to help a broader audience understand that they might be interested in Orange is the New Black because, you know, the perception at the time is, you know, this is kind of a a show for millennials, there's, you know, some, some vulgar humor, some, you know, off color jokes, and, you know, they're very kind of sassy women. We were lucky in that we were able to take a New York Times approach and say, how can we best reach those kind of readers who might be socially conscious, you know, interested in social justice, who might be, you know, skeptical about the current prison system and, and want to learn more about that experience. And our approach to that was to do a long form reported piece where we talked to real current and former inmates, prison reform workers, researchers, prison employees to really get a better sense of what women's true experience of prison is like in the United States. Our task really was to focus on the true stories and not to necessarily push, you know, watch the show or here's the characters, that, that sort of thing. And of course, it wasn't just text. There was a short documentary involved. Um, there were audio clips of women prisoners telling the audience about their stories. I'm wondering if there were any editorial resources used at the New York Times, or was it separate? Like, did, did you rely on New York Times copy editors and fact checkers or videographers? Or was it important to have a completely separated team from the editorial? Yeah, so those teams are as separate as separate can be. There's really no sharing of resources. The, the rare exception might be a technology experience, right? We may be using some of the same code or some of the same tools internally to bring content to life um, because tech can be Switzerland. But that being said, T-Brand Studio has its own dedicated team of developers who work on these things. So there really is no sharing of talent, you know, intentionally trying to maintain the separation and integrity of the folks who work on the really trusted editorial content that the New York Times puts out. So we were a completely separate team. There was really no sharing of insights. What was so interesting for us is that, you know, in the days, I believe just before our piece came out, the New York Times newsroom actually put out their review of season two of Orange is the New Black. Now, we had no idea that that was coming and they had no idea that we were doing anything. So to us, the fact that that happened spoke to how successfully we were able to maintain that separation. It wasn't just the gold standard then in content um, and, and, and entertainment value and educational value, but also in practice. But I think a lot of media companies aren't as uh, lucky to be the New York Times. Here in Canada, the Globe and Mail had a problem where they were using a lot of their writers and journalists to do branded content, and it was building a lot of resentment. With the women inmates story, it is as good as it gets. John Oliver actually called it as good as it gets. He likened it to hearing the one Katy Perry song that's good, but being conflicted about it because it's still a Katy Perry song. Kind of unfair to Katy Perry, but I, I get what he's saying. And and he pointed out that, you know, the companies aren't always as benign as Netflix or Orange is the New Black. Um, both Chevron and Shell have had New York Times native advertising. Do you think he has a point? Should we allow any company into the sponsored content game, like Scientology, for example, in the Atlantic? 
should we allow any company, even those in the mining industry that maybe owe a debt to society? That choice ultimately comes down to the individual publication and what their ad standards are. Because at the end of the day, what we're talking about here as beautiful or well-written or well-directed and shot as it may be, we're producing advertising content. And most publishers have in place rules about what kind of advertisers they do and do not accept. And they enact those standards based on, you know, moral judgments, on their political leanings, on a number of different things. You know, when I was at Huffington Post, where we had we had set public very clear uh, stances on things like women's rights, the environment, diversity issues, it was not uncommon for us to say we would simply not respond to a request for branded content from advertisers that stood against some of the things that were kind of in opposition to our clear stances on some of those issues. Um, I think where it becomes challenging is perhaps in a news context where you don't want to necessarily have a stated stance on something. You know, you don't want to, to appear to stand for one idea or another when objectivity is your charge. It becomes a lot harder to have a moral objection to an advertiser. It's definitely a judgment call. I think what is important to note is that every advertiser has something that they can share of value that may not be so morally reprehensible. You know, if you think of an oil company, I think the average person might be interested in learning more about the safety precautions that they have put in place, particularly if they've failed in that area in the past. You know, hearing, what are you doing differently? Take us inside. Show us what those precautions are. How can you assure us as consumers that whatever you did last summer in whatever body of water is never going to happen again? So, you know, in those contexts, I think, you know, there can be value. I'm not here to, uh, I'm not, not ready to die on the hill of branded content for energy advertisers. It's not something I'm particularly taking a stance for, but I just feel very strongly that, you know, most advertisers do have stories, information, and insights that can bring value to readers. And sometimes they just need help telling that story in a compelling way. Are there any legal issues as far as sponsored content goes? Because we are now talking about advertising, not editorial. So I imagine you lose some of the fair game rules that come with journalism. If you're writing sponsored content, can you just drop another brand's name or a celebrity's name? Or does it infringe on some copyright laws now that it's an ad? Yeah, there's there's certainly a lot of rules surrounding branded content because, as I said, at the end of the day, it's an ad experience and is often held under the same laws that a commercial would be. So yeah, when it comes to mentioning other brand names, using other brand logos, that's generally not going to make a pass. You know, there may be exceptions, particularly in those more lifestyle angles. You know, if you're a fashion advertiser and you want to show how to make a, a, a great fall date night look, you might include a product from another brand and they might not be offended because you're kind of praising them. There, there are some gray areas for sure. As a general rule, you're not going to want to be mentioning any other copyrighted or or trademarked, you know, people, places, things, brands, etc. Um, you certainly don't want other logos appearing, uh, appearing in, in your imagery. But that's not different than what you'd see in a commercial. You know, and there are exceptions, as I said, where you have the proper legal language to disclose that it's not your trademark, etc. Generally, your the publication has a legal team that has some familiarity and can help with that. The agency probably has a legal, you know, resource that can help with that. And most brands have uh, an in-house legal team that is more than happy to scrape through everything and, and make sure everything is compliant. So, 
uh, you definitely want to leave time for those kind of reviews in your process. In in the text itself, is is there such a thing as fair use when you're talking about sponsored content? I'm not sure I am equipped to answer, truthfully. And I think the reason for that is we're still learning a lot yeah. of these things, you know, that we don't have precedent in a lot of these cases. And we've seen that with the FTC, you know, cracking down on certain pieces of branded content, certain kinds of branded content. What's an example of that, of the FTC cracking down on sponsored content that they saw as some sort of violation? There was a piece recently, uh, this was maybe two years ago, where Lord and Taylor had paid, I believe it was Nylon Magazine, you know, to review a specific dress. And they had also sent that dress to a number of influencers uh, who all posted their outfit, you know, the same day uh, on Instagram, I believe it was, you know, wearing this dress and failed to disclose it that it was sponsored. And the behavior of those influencers, you know, seemingly not disclosing that they had received that product for free and were being paid to promote it kind of led the FTC to realize that there were some other contexts in that same campaign, including, you know, some of their branded content stuff that also wasn't very clearly disclosed. So, you know, in those cases, there were fines levied against, you know, the brand as well as well as the influencers, I believe. Um, but yeah, it's been a mix of who's getting sanctioned. Is it, you know, sometimes it's the publisher, sometimes it's the brand, sometimes the influencers have been cited directly. So, you know, like I said, it's really still the Wild West out here. We're still figuring out by trial and error who's accountable for all of this. So what do you think the future of, of native advertising is as far as execution goes as far as legalities go um even as far as mediums go i mean i'm starting to see it pop up in podcasts where does it go from here you know what's exciting to me is is not the limited space of branded content as it applies to publishers but as you said figuring out what native as an adjective means for for advertising in all the different contexts that we now consume content so Everything from AR and VR experiences to different app experiences to podcasts to there are so many mediums where there may be a way for an advertiser to be naturally integrated in a way that's not disruptive that really does bring value to the experience. And I'm excited to get to work with some clients where we're exploring some of those things. And I'm excited to see how so many other fantastic thought leaders in the industry are exploring those in, in still other contexts. And, you know, podcasts is one area that I'm particularly interested in. Brand podcasts have doubled over the course of 2017. So, you know, podcast is definitely a big area. Um, but I think it's just really exciting. I think advertisers are increasingly realizing that, you know, consumers don't have to listen to them and they have more options than ever for ignoring them. So if they want to be heard, they have to say something worth hearing. Lastly, the, the examples that we've talked about are pretty high quality, high production examples. But, you know, for the little magazine in Alberta, for the little media company in Alberta, is this really something that they can get into realistically, a value, with value? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the things that I think is so important is, you know, we've been talking about native and, and what is most natural. In a lot of cases, brands might think they need a gigantic partner like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, you know, some of these major international publishers. But you have to really think about where your audience is. And in many cases, the best place for you to be is your local newspaper or a regional magazine. You know, you can do this at a much smaller budget point in a way that's probably going to be much more effective than if you tried to go after a mass market audience, you know, who may not be the right person to reach with your storytelling. So definitely look for those local media partners uh, who can give you the audience you need to reach and help you figure out a way to tell stories in a way their audience is going to love. Melanie, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to seeing you in Calgary. See you then. 
And thank you, the listeners, for tuning in. If you want to learn more from Melanie, come to Calgary on March 8th and 9th for the 2018 Alberta Magazine Conference. She'll be presenting the seminar, Branded Content Best Practices for Magazine Publishers. And she'll be there along with Popular Sciences Online Director Amy Schellenbaum, former Cottage Life Editor and Publisher Pemmy Caldwell, and Jeremy Leslie of May Culture Studio, who I'll be talking to in the next episode about the ever-changing discipline of editorial design. Conference passes are on sale right now, so take advantage of the early bird pricing by going to albertamagazines.com for passes and tickets. My name is Omar Moalam. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and make sure to check with the AMPA website or subscribe to iTunes for more interviews with our industry's finest. Ciao for now.